Hello and welcome to The Northern Connection, a podcast celebrating books, writing and writers with links to the North. We are Rachel, Emma, Jules and Rebecca, four Northern-based book lovers who love getting together to talk all things bookish. In this episode, we catch up with Sophie Parks. So Sophie is currently studying for a PhD in creative writing and folklore at Sheffield Hallam University. Her historical novel, Out of Human Sight, was shortlisted for the Northbound Book Award at the 2021 Northern Writers Awards, and it was published last year by Northodox Press. Sophie has also written and published the official biography of folk musician Eliza Carthy, and she worked with endurance athlete Dave Healy to create his biography. Welcome to the Northern Connection, Sophie. Please, can you tell us about your latest book, Out of Human Sight? Yeah, thank you for inviting me to come and speak to you all. Um, yeah, so Out of Human Sight uh, is set in Saddleworth in 1832. And it follows Millie, who is on the cusp of adulthood, um, who unfortunately discovers the bodies of her grandfather and her uncle very early on. So it's right at the beginning. I'm not giving away any spoilers there. Um, and yeah, a murder has taken place. And it the, the novel charts her life for the following year, really, and what happens. Um, it's not so much, I guess, a who done it, but more a how done it, if you like, or or or, or even a why done it. Um, and it's the notoriety of the crime, which is actually a true life crime, in such a small place, a hamlet essentially at that time, that would have um, grown quite quickly uh, due to industrialization. Um, so it's really, I guess, a novel of how you deal with something the infamy of something so notorious. Uh, it was a national story. Um, and, and what really happens to her from, from then on, how she deals with that, really. Yeah. And can you tell us where the idea for the book came from? Yeah. So I moved to this area, to sort of Saddleworth, the very edges of Greater Manchester, uh, almost 10 years ago now. And a friend who was living here already, knowing that I like folklore and story and history, told me about the Bills of Jack's murders, as they're often known, of, of 1832. And it, and it was exactly this, um, a pub known locally as Bills of Jack's, um, the Moorcock Inn is its actual name, is on a, a very remote road that links Greenfield to Homeforth. Um, and the pub was used as a sort of stopping place for merchants and navvies. Um, and it was just owned by this very elderly man and his son. And they were murdered and no perpetrator was found. Um, and of course, as stories like this tend to do, it grew its own folklore and it, and it was the folklore of the story that really drew me in. I'm not somebody that tends to write um, crime at all. I'm not really interested in, in murder as such. Um, but it was the kind of conjecture that grew up around it. You know, who did this and and why and, and the sort of rumour mill that started. And 1832 was a very early period for um, the very start of the police force and obviously um, judicial inquiries like this were very sort of rudimentary. So that really enables, it fosters this kind of sense of of rumour and people, you know, uh, start targeting various um, people in the community. Of, uh, and I just found that fascinating. Um, and also, I suppose, um, how that community actually dealt with it and how the family dealt with it. Because, you know, if you weren't well off at the time, um, life was incredibly hard and the family um, that owned the pub 
um, of the people that were deceased actually gave tours of the pub and kept it in its um, state, its really blood spattered state. And people came from across the country, quite well to do people came um, to see the site of this murder. And it, it became notorious. It became the area became known as Bills of Jacks. It is now sometimes still re referred to as the Bills of Jacks plantation. Um, people wrote plays at the time to, to sort of explore it. Um, it became a place to go and visit if you were on business in Manchester or if you were um, going to Scarborough to take the sea air, you might make a big diversion and go to Bills or Jackson. And it was all of that really that drew me in. You know, how does somebody overcome something like that? It, rem it reminds me that of that um, pub we stayed in in Howarth that time. Do you remember where, where they advertised on the wall that it were one of the most haunted pubs in, um, in Howarth? And Emma, Emma particularly were quite freaked out by it, weren't you? Cool. Yeah. I'm glad we found that out at breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the pub was actually demolished in the 1930s and it's it's situated now very close to the reservoirs and where the water board is. It's it's uh, on land that I believe is, un uh, is owned by the water board. And um, apparently it was demolished due to... Um, I guess not being hygienic, there's sort of sanitation not being great up there. But I should imagine a lot of it's to do with this constant interest in this really nefarious crime that didn't go away. I mean, people did continue to run it as a pub afterwards, but knowing what happened there is just, yeah, really mm. unpleasant. It's really I interesting, isn't it? Because I remember going through some papers of my grand's when, when she died. And I think this was sort of early in sort of 1900 she'd got a postcard and it was i remember it was called gears cottages and when i googled it a murder had happened there and they were selling postcards of the cottage yeah like a you know it's sort of thinking can you imagine now if we were doing that like you know with a yeah. notorious murder and we were like sell, selling postcards of it There'd that happened outside. with this case too the family in the pub sold postcards and I've, I've seen pictures actually in, in Saddleworth um, Museum you can see there's a permanent exhibit about this murder and you can see some of the postcards from there and other pubs in the area would also sell these postcards and it's fascinating isn't it and I've also learned from your book that Saddleworth's got a museum because I didn't even know that so I might have to yeah trip out there sometimes it's lovely yeah it's volunteer run it's quite small but it's really nice and it's so useful for somebody like me who's looking into the industry of the area at the time because it's so important the, the industry of that time was so important to the area um your previous two books have been biographical how different has it been writing a novel yeah so I, i've always written fiction and creatively i suppose for want of a better phrase since i was a kid um and I've sort of written journalism and creative nonfiction and nonfiction on the side. Um, and to be blunt, I found it much easier to publish nonfiction. So that's kind of why it happened that way round. Um, but practically speaking, it, it writing biographically and writing two works of biographical sort of um, yeah nonfiction really helped me with dealing with long form um, writing. It, it taught me how to order my thoughts. Um, and I think when I'd written creatively before, I'd always started at the beginning and tried to write to the end and sometimes found myself stuck in the middle. And for some reason, I don't know quite how it worked, but with the biographical works, I learned to sort of write in fragments and 
you know, wherever my interest took me first or the bits that I thought were strongest or the bits that had most research behind them and I wanted to get writing. And then I sewed it all together at the end and, and made a whole and then worked it out from there. And that I found worked really well for me. And that, that's now how I write my fiction. Had I not written those books, I don't think I would have come to that or I might have come to it much later. It really suits me um, writing like that. I just find to get a project off the ground, I need bits that I are almost like quick wins, bits I'm really passionate about or really interested in and feels like it flies off. And then I work out how to pin it all together afterwards. Oh, and voice as well, like particularly the ghostwriting um, for a guy called Dave Healy, who's um, a real character from West Bromwich, has a, has a real, um, you know, a particular way of speaking. So tuning into his voice was also really helpful because I, I was writing as him. I wasn't necessarily writing about him. So, um, yeah, the import, importance of voice as well, I think, really helped me. And obviously, um, Out of Human Sight is based on a true story, but were you drawn to writing about that particular time period or historical fiction in general? Yeah, I mean, that particular period, because the area I live, I just feel like it really wears that period still now. It's really visible. Like, a lot of the housing stock was built around then or not long after. The house I, I'm in right now is, you know, not much uh, later than the time that the novel's set there are still mills everywhere and mill chimneys and um yeah I just and I, it got me wondering like how different life was then to now and what, what the similarities might be which seems like a really obvious thing to say but the more we kind of dig into that it just gets you thinking like how did people cope with this weather that we have here this real sort of microclimate when you didn't have central heating or mm. you know how did you get over a murder when you didn't have um, I don't know, therapists to call on. Um, but the church might have been really important at the time. And it just got me comparing our scenarios a, a little bit. And um, and like I said, there was a lot to see and a lot to experience. And I suppose the research came out of that, really. I think that's what I love about reading historical fiction, because that's my favourite genre. And I think it is thinking about how people lived and what they wore and how they went about their lives differently and yeah because yeah. there are so many things that when you think about it are fundamentally the same or you expect them to be like our reactions to certain things and the way uh, our coping mechanisms but then they're just funneled through different structures or different perspectives and and different behavior and um and in some ways i think life can be depending on your situation just as hard now um, there are so many similarities between then and now. And I think the thing that one of the differences is, though, that, you know, all the struggles that people have now, you know, we talk a lot about mental health and stuff like that these days. And of all of that existed then, but we just talk about it a lot more now and we've got social media and things, haven't we? So it's just everything's just out there for the world. Yeah to see and know now isn't it and that's yeah. that's probably one of the big differences isn't it between now yeah. and then yeah and I also think we've got on a higher expectation of our standard of living now yes. um you know when you think back to sort of even my grandparents age they they expected to struggle mm. I think you know there is that sort of expectation and you know when you look back at sort of that time and and how many people didn't make it to 50 yeah and how many children died in infancy and things like that. They they expected that. There wasn't this sort of 
it wasn't an entitlement to life in the way that we have an entitlement to life, I think. Mm. And I think as well, broadly speaking, what you were taught, whether that's through the rudimentary school system or Sunday school or the church more generally is, is to know your place. And, and like you say, to, to not expect that beyond your station and, and to be enthralled to something, a, a mightier power that you have less control over. And that, as you say, is not our narrative now. We want to control our lives. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you've already touched on this a little bit, but how much research did you have to do to bring this novel to life? Yeah, um, well, I'm, I'm definitely not a historian and I hadn't really written a great deal of historical fiction before. Um, and early on, I started reading around and then I just thought, actually, if I get bogged down in the research now, I don't think I'll ever get the story out. So I decided which might have been quite risky, but I decided that the first draft um, would be just me writing the story and just guessing. And if I have a gap in knowledge to sort of circle it, come back to it later. Um, I don't know what Hilary Mantel would have made of that. <laughs> um, but it was funny because as I was writing it, I, I thought, well, you know, I'm getting to know the characters um, and I'm getting to get the cut and thrust of the plot. And that's the important thing for me, you know, it's got to feel real, but actually the story is, is what matters. Um, and actually it surprised me because I felt like actually I probably knew more than I realized um, through reading from the period like Bronte, like Mrs. Gaskell, Dickens, that kind of, it gave me a sort of working vocabulary, if you like. I kept using words that I didn't quite like patterns. I kept writing about patterns and I was like, actually are patterns because I just I've just taken this word sort of uh, as osmosis and that would send me on like out into the world to find out what these things meant and I kept a notepad that was just need to research this need to research that and and that first draft um I was actually it was part of my creative writing MA and I shared parts of that first draft with fellow writers on on the MA and also I've got a writing group where I live and people didn't question the the, hist the historical aspects of it at all. I thought people would start going, oh, well, you've got this completely wrong, and they didn't wear this, and this fabric wasn't around then. And nobody did. It, all the um, criticism came back as what you'd expect, I guess, about story and character development and so on. But that made me really worry then, because I just thought, oh, people believe you. <laughs> so you've really got to do your research, you know, to make sure that because you know, I don't want to mislead anyone. I don't want to make anything up. I wanted this story, although acknowledging it would be a contemporary story for contemporary readers being set in the past. I still wanted it to feel right and be accurate, as accurate as I could. Um, so that really pulled me up then and made sure that I did my research. Um, but it wasn't just sort of reading big historical tomes and things. It was a lot of reading the fiction from the period, reading other historical fiction, Margaret Atwood's Elias Grace was really helpful because there were real similarities there. Um, but then also getting out to museums um, like the Saddleworth Museum, then um, the Maritime Museum in Liverpool. Again, no spoilers, but there is a, a period of um, the, a boat features. <laughs> and um, I knew so little about emigration and, and the big journeys people took um, at that time. And the museum in Liverpool has a re recreation of a steerage, which I didn't even know was there until I, I got there, which was so handy. Um, 
and I, I went to a, a an old working mill as well where I could really hear the noise of the equipment and of the machinery and um and that was so helpful that, that kind of experiential stuff that you kind of imagine but then when you're actually faced with it you're like okay yeah this makes sense yeah um that's yeah. um, what you mentioned about accuracy that crops up quite a lot when we're recording these podcasts and chatting to other authors um even as far as the, the when i went to harrogate i can't remember whether it was last year to theakston's crime and um a talk that i went to one gentleman said he even had a look at whether it rained on a particular day because he knew that someone would pick him up with on it and say yeah. you know that didn't it, it were a glorious sunshine that day actually yes so, well yeah i i can understand that because there's nothing worse yourself if you're reading something whether it's historical fiction or, or something else and suddenly something that you know to be different crops up and it just throws you out of the narrative altogether and you suddenly feel mistrust or that you've been misled or or even just let down and it's hard to get back in then isn't it if if you just if you spot mm. something like that regardless well, of the writer's intention we can't be right all the time but yeah whereas someone like me wouldn't have a clue whether it were right <laughs> or wrong so <laughs> Oh, um, can you tell us what you're working on next? Yeah, so um mentioned briefly when we were chatting before that I'm doing a creative writing PhD at Sheffield Hallam University. So I'm really lucky to be able to, uh, at the moment at least, say that I write full time. And I'm in my final stage, I hope to submit in the summer. And it is a practice-based PhD, which means you produce something out of your practice and then you, you have a, a shorter thesis that kind of contextualises it. And my interest in folklore, um, I, I've written a contemporary novel this time uh, called Thanks Tide. That's what it's called at the moment. Anyway, who knows? But um, and it's looking at what we call um, calendar customs or traditions that happen in the community, things like May Day or cheese rolling. Or um, if you live in a, a community and you do something like this, um, then you'll know exactly what I mean. But the interesting thing about these kind of traditions is not everybody has experienced these these things even today with social media and 24-hour news and stuff they still kind of operate on their own terms and I, I I've always been interested in these traditions and I wanted to know how they could work in text in fiction because I kept writing short stories um or even there's there's one in out of human sight and I kept using them myself and I was thinking why am I drawn to these what do they say in the text what do they say about characters or you know, what does it bring as a narrative device? And I started spotting them in other people's novels. And yeah, and the study's born out of that, really. So yeah, it's a contemporary novel that has, it, it opens and closes um, around this weekend uh, tradition that's taking place in a village. And it's um, the various cast of characters, how they engage and relate with that. And it's been so much fun, really interesting. Um, so we'll see, we'll see what happens with that. How long have you got left to, um, to do that? Uh, well, I'm hoping, um, yeah, to submit in the summer. So the novel's pretty much there. I'm now um, on the thesis side of things. That's kind of, yeah, all the scholarship. And I've been interviewing people who are um, who organise customs and, and stuff. So that's, yeah, been really interesting. And are you able to tell us what you're currently reading? Or is that mostly yeah. round about your your research and your thesis yeah no I'm I'm reading May by Naomi Kruger at the moment I don't know if you've come across that um 
I understand she is a Preston-based writer, and I think this is set in Preston as well, although I don't think it's been named as yet. I'm about halfway through. And I was recommended it um, because I'm using lots of different voices and perspectives in this current novel that I'm writing, and, and she does too. And hers is set across a day, whereas mine's set over a weekend. So it's really helpful to see how other writers have tackled multiple things going on across a short period of time. And it's great, it's really interesting. I have absolutely no idea where it's gonna go. And I always quite like that feeling, you know, ooh, anything's possible. So yeah, um, so it's a really good read. So I do recommend it. We'll make a note. Absolutely, <laughs> we always like a good recommendation. And can you recommend either a book or an author with a Northern connection? Yeah, it's funny. I, I think I mainly read Northern writers, actually. Or, uh, I don't know if that's intentional or that's just how it happens, but it does seem to be that way. And I think my favourite, or at least one of my favourite writers at the moment is Benjamin Myers. And um, I haven't read his very latest um, Cuddy, um, but yeah, all of his, and even his early stuff, which doesn't get mentioned so much, but the first novel I read of his was Pig Iron. And I, I was just like... Uh, blown away is used far too much but I really was I was just like wow what is this I've never read anything like it before and the gallows pole for me was just like ah this is how historical fiction should be done this is just fantastic um and when I finished beasting I actually Mm. tweeted him and just said I can't believe you've written that ending I I feel scarred and he said something like not as scarred as enough uh, for me to write it or something like (laughs) um yeah he's just great um and Karen Powell, who recently um, published uh, 15 Wild Decembers. There's a lot of Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was just beautiful, beautiful book. And I, I had the pleasure of doing an event with her recently and with um, Rowan Coleman. And we did a proper like Bronte themed um, night, which was really good fun. Um, have, so, yeah. you, um, have you read the first book, The River Within? I have. I love that as well. Yeah, yeah, really, really, really lovely. She's such an elegant writer. Um, I'm teaching um, this semester um, the novel module, it's called, and we're going to be looking at 15 Wild Decembers, p- particularly looking at setting and how you work with such a setting that's so well known that people feel that they know very well mm. and is written about a lot. And, you know, you see a lot on telly or in film and she's just made it her own. And it's just... Yeah, yeah, really, really. One thing I said about um, 15 Wild Decembers when I reviewed it was that she gets that bleakness of the Yorkshire Moor spot on, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah. oh yeah, really. definitely. Yeah, yeah. And also I've just read, and this was another book recommended to me that I, I didn't know the author or the book, um, Mick Jackson, um, Five Boys, and he's from Lancashire. And although the book is actually set in the South, and I think he might live in the South now, but it had a feeling of sort of Andrew Michael Hurley sort of eeriness, but in a more sort of genteel way in a village. And because, yeah, I'm writing a village at the moment. Um, I thought it was really good, really funny, very eccentric. And yeah, really enjoyed it. That was great. Well, thank you very much. But finally, before you leave us, please, could you just read us a short extract from the book? To yes. give listeners a flavour of the story? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Um, I'll read from the beginning, which is what I tend to do, because then I feel like, I'm not spoiling anyone's enjoyment of what's happening afterwards. Uh, It's one of those books that if you dip in elsewhere, it just kind of gives the game away a little bit. So, okay, so I'll start from the beginning. Millie could see the open door to the inn as she turned onto the track. There was no sign of the dray. The barrels would have been unloaded earlier. 
She searched the green bowl of the valley for her uncle, cocking his gun at a rabbit or checking his traps. She pushed the hair out of her eyes, but it flayed her cheeks again, pulling at the pins jammed into the back of her head. The wind was so fierce that she'd have to pin it all back up when she got home. Another task for the list. Why her mother had chosen this afternoon to run out of yeast, she didn't know. Why should it be her duly dispatched when Jane would have done just as well? The bakestone was Jane's domain after all. However, she would have made a fuss, while Millie was soft, unable to say no to Mam's inconvenient requests. She, Tudor and Mam were all soft compared to her sister. From your father, Mam had said on more than one occasion. Her temper is from your father and his before him. She barely remembered her father, of course, but the comment about her grander had surprised her. Grander seemed too quiet, too absorbed in his work to have a temper. Or if he did, he swallowed it when Millie was around, when she was threading her fingers through the cob's forelock when the dray arrived, or collecting up the feathers from her uncle's recent shoot, or borrowing yeast. She looked up to the heavens, the sky the colour of newly carded wool, and closed her eyes momentarily in apology. It wasn't Mam's fault. It wasn't anybody's fault. Yeast was yeast, and if some were to be had, it too would soon be used. The inn door remained open. Her uncle was not amongst the tough hillocks of grass, harder still the closer it grew to the hillside. He wasn't fixing a fence post, one hand clamped to the hat on his head, nor was he taking apart his gun on his knee, raised on the stile. As she scanned from one hillside to the next, there was no man nor beast visible, only the grasses swaying. The weather was coming in. The clouds hulked in front of her eyes. She fixed her hair behind her ears and ran towards the inn. Tom? She pushed the door back on its hinges. She had seen grown men swing on that door, kicking their feet up from the stones and hanging from whitening fingers, her grander smiling from the bar but threatening recompense for any damage. Grander? It was cool in the inn. Cold. She felt her knee twitch. A good inn should never be cold. There wasn't a light in the grate, nor a candle on the bar. She wrapped her shawl about her. Millie was alone, she was certain of that. She would hear her grandad's boots on the flags otherwise, his constant cough hassling his whiskers, or his perfunctory barks to his one remaining son. She knocked a chair, heard it screech against the flagstones. The sound made her wince. Her eyes adjusted to the gloom. The tables and benches had been pushed together, overturned chairs, their limbs wrought together as though frozen mid-tumble. Had there been a party or a fight? And there was a smell, distinct. Tom had been hunting recently then, separating feather from sinew from bone. Her patterns ground glass into the stone. A, pa a pain was missing. She could hear fingers of wind sifting through the roof slates, the beating of the rain. Grander, she shouted this time, her voice vanishing so quickly she wasn't sure she had said anything at all. The chimney cleared its throat, sent ash spiralling out of the grate. The blood at her wrists quickened. It was nothing to worry about, she told herself. Men living alone rarely kept house like the one she would, like Mam would. They didn't seem to notice the cold. But then she heard a moan, low. She skittered over the glass, her hands reaching for the bar. Sacking lay in the doorway between the bar and the snug. She went to whip it away, bundle it under her arms to put away for washing, folding or whatever her grandfather wanted which was when she noticed the boots, boots and legs, the red of his kerchief. She bent over it, him, bent over him, her grandfather's body, his nose and brow beaten into his face, a soft, bloodied mess. She stepped back, saw her grandfather's shirt ripped open at the collarbone. She thought of the bright blood in the eggs she'd cracked against the side of a bowl that morning and how she needed yeast, 
and teeth, teeth caught in the soup like tiny nuggets of stale bread. A faint whistle came from his mouth, the red stickiness bubbling. She crouched over him, grasped at his collar with shaking hands. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. It's been lovely to talk to you all. Thank you so much for listening. We now have a Northern Connection page on bookshop.org and there you'll find the books that we uh, talk about in each episode along with books recommended by us and by others we chat to. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter or X at NorthernConPod and we're on Instagram, The Northern Connection. We'll be back soon with another episode. Bye for now.